0: Thank you, Elder Paul, for the powerful prayer. Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Bobby, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Pastor Owen is away today because he is preaching at the one-year anniversary of Christ, our daughter church, Christ Central Tyson's. Let's give the Lord praise for his faithfulness (laughs) to Peter, Jane, all the leadership at Christ Central Tyson's. Our sermon series through the book of Galatians has focused on getting the gospel right. For the world is always trying to get us to believe that our own private version of the gospel is the right one. We say the true gospel is more conservative, and some of us would say the true gospel is more progressive. We protect it And we distance ourselves from anything that would challenge our version of the gospel. We would even divide the church, the body of Christ, over it. And often, the version that we tend to endorse, it never challenges our own thoughts or our own lives, but we just build it up to support what we want out of life, what we think is right. So the abundant and flourishing life for the Christian is not a life free of suffering and abundance, but a life that is centered on the will of God and the immutable truth of the gospel that addresses every single one of us. It challenges every single one of us. Not one of us is exempt from that truth. The title of today's sermon is The War Within, The Flesh and the Spirit, and it comes from Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. So you'll see that on the screen and you can read along or with your Bible or device. Verse 16, "But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like them. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask you, Would you have mercy upon me, a sinner before you? And would you meet with those that have walked into this room with cares and burdens and hearts that have grown numb from all the pain, the arguments, the hurt that loved ones have said things that can't be erased from our minds and hearts, the wounds and the fears of the future that we carry, would you meet with us and in your sovereign mercy and grace hold us and remind us, our oh God, that you are here, that you love us, that you have given your son to secure us in your love. So we delight in you, who you are, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Addressing the second half, of the epistle, John Stott, the commentator, theologian, says this. The main emphasis of the second half of the epistle to the Galatians is that in Christ life is freedom. We were in bondage under the curse of the condemnation of the law, but Christ has set us free from it. We were slaves to sin. But now, we are God's children. But as loaded a word as enslavement is and should be, knowing our past, to many of us in the Northern Virginia area, we kind of gloss over it. It's just a word on a page that we read, maybe in history books. But the Bible is exhorting us to awaken from our slumber to see That enslavement is just as real and yet so subconsciously dismissed and subdued, so hidden from our sight that we walk around as if it doesn't matter to us. As if what the Bible is describing, this war that is within us, the enslavement of my soul actually doesn't matter. Let's take a look at today's text through these three points. The first is this. We'll address the war within us, that it is very real, that everything that we do in life is actually coming from this foundational war that we're fighting inside of us or that we ignore. And number two, we'll address what these works of flesh are doing to us, and it's actually showing up every day in every relationship, everything we think. It impacts our work, our life, and everything around us. And lastly, we'll address the fruit of the Spirit, how the Holy Spirit living in us gives us a new way to live, away from the enslavement, powerful to live as light in this world. The first, we're going to address the war within us. To basically be a sleepy Christians as, you know, many theologians and the Bible would refer to us, means that you have become ineffective and non-relevant because you are blind to the very war that the Bible consistently speaks of we're always up for fighting a cultural war. So we say we're Christians, so we attack all the things that we don't believe in and as progressives we attack all the Christians or conservative and they're doing nothing and they're sitting around talking about this is holy and this is not and this is what we don't need and this is what we don't do and everyone is at their throats trying to fight a war on the outside. What we don't realize is that we are attacking and isolating ourselves from those that disagree with us because we're trying to uphold our worth, who we are by what we say and what we proclaim that we believe. But yet we're enslaved to that. We find our worth, our joy, our identity in those things. And we aren't even addressing daily the war that is determining what we say and how we live and how we view the world. One of my favorite movies, and to some of our young British people, I don't know, some of the younger people, this might be a new movie to you. Uh, It's called Dances with Wolves. Okay, It sounds funny, even the title, but back then I loved it. Okay, And it's one of my favorite movies. And there's a scene that it begins with, and one of the most beautiful movies, cinematic movies of all time. And the beginning scene is a stalemate between the Northern Union soldiers and the Southern Confederate soldiers. And so this is kind of like the United States. All of us like hate each other and all of us think we're all dumb and we're all just kind of waiting to take over the country. No one wants to charge the other side. We're at a stalemate. We're all hiding behind our weapons. And once in a while, the soldier will stand up and shoot the gun. Doesn't hit anything, and it doesn't matter. A lot of the soldiers in the beginning scene live as if there is no war. Actually, the scene faces some of the soldiers who are literally sleeping. Like they're at war, they're on the field, they have weapons, but they're sleeping. And one of the soldiers actually found a cat and is playing with the cat and is like just having fun. And as I'm watching this, there is Lieutenant John Dunbar who was going to get his leg amputated. And he puts on this boot because he doesn't want his leg amputated. He would rather die than have his leg amputated. And so he gets on a horse and he charges the middle of the field. And he, as he's charging the field, all the soldiers in the Confederate side like, oh, shoot, somebody is coming, let's kill him. And so they all grab their guns and they start taking aim and they're starting to shoot him. And he is just going and he's like, I'm ready to die. And as he's going through the field, no one hits him. And he gets to the other side and he's like, you know what? I'm going back, right? And so all the Confederate soldiers are like, come on, come back. And he gets back, and he starts riding again. And this time, he closes his eyes. It looks like his horse is slowing down. He's like, I'm not doing this again. And he raises his hand. And there is one soldier, the sniper. He's like sitting, knelt down. Everyone else is like missing literally everything. And he's just following John Dunbar, and he's taking aim. And the officer comes and he goes, Ray, Ray. And he says the words, I got him. Doesn't lift. And I was like, my heart was palpitating. Pop! A shot in the head. But it wasn't John Dunbar who goes down. It was the sniper. John's actions Awaken the soldiers to realize that guns were being fired and they were at war. And so the northern soldiers got back on the field. The generals who were hanging out on the top, like just being like, oh, how come no one's fighting? How come no one's charging? They ran down the hill, they go across, and they dominate the Confederate side. They all run away because the actions of one man who said we're at war and everyone woke up. There is a clear war that is inside all of us, and all of us are like the soldiers on both sides who are laying on the field, and we're like, we're exhausted. Everyone is yelling, everyone is angry, we just don't want to do anything, and so we withdraw from the war. Nothing gets accomplished. In Romans chapter 7 verse 22, Apostle Paul confirms and exhorts us. He says that in my inner being I delight in God's law. Yet he finds that there is another law at work in the members of my body. And it is waging war against the law of my mind. The big problem is that most of us are walking around like we're living in times of peace. When inside there is a war that is trying to consume our soul, to take us away from the truth. It would be almost like a teenager who would be shooting a TikTok video in Gaza, sharing about her favorite restaurant, the favorite movie theater, and places where her friends go to hang out, walking around as if there is no war in Gaza. Like this picture, the buildings collapsing around her and people dying, her family and friends in imminent danger. To be unaware of the most significant event and context in her life would make us begin to doubt her sanity. To be on TikTok talking about her favorite restaurant, her grip on reality, other things in her life, are not unimportant. Her friends, her favorite restaurant, these are all things that is her. But to not focus on the most significant occurrence in her life indicates that she has become numb or that the war is so big and she's so overwhelmed that she can do nothing but suppress it because to deal with it would be overwhelming. For most of us, the problem is not that we are not aware of this war within intellectually, if we've attended the church in our childhood, even in our past, it is what we know, what the Bible says is true. Here's the big problem. We effectively live as if it's not real. Not that it's not real, but we live as if it's not real, as if it doesn't matter and doesn't affect our life. We can just go on and do the things that we think matters. This war within that most of us have become blind to, it affects us so deeply and at such a foundational level that it seeps out to impact every decision and every relationship. It is the reason why we live in our past and all the men who have played sports in their high school and they used to walk out on the field and they used to hear the clap and their name being pronounced and they love that. They live in that. And so they transfer that to their golf game, to pickleball, whatever it is. And in their heart, they go, I want that again that it is much better to be in a golf field where people clap at your skill level than to be at home where your wife says you're useless. You don't care about me. You don't care about our family. You don't care about our kids. And you just sit there and you mope. You're useless. And so it is better for us to be in a place where we're celebrated and we feel numb to the voice that tells us that we're nothing. It seeps out and impacts this war, every relationship. The reason why we start disagreements with the people we love, we hold tightly to misunderstandings, we refuse to reconcile, we build grudges, and we add reasons why there are people that are toxic and that we shouldn't reach out to and heal the relationship with. Ultimately, hating the people that God has called us to love, creating divisions and tribalism, it comes from this war within. But we act as if it doesn't. We walk around and we numb the pain. Dr. Keller speaks to the reality of this war within us. Our imagination is captured by the things that we find beautiful. Dr. Keller says the two natures Paul speaks of are really two semi-intact motivational systems within us. A motivational system is centered on a goal that the imagination finds beautiful and desirable. This goal generates that we perceive what we perceive as needs and manufactures drives to attain them. The sinful nature is really our old motivational system with its own goals and thus its own needs and drives still somewhat intact. It is focusing on some object that is in itself good, but which it turns into an idol by which we seek our salvation. What we say in our hearts, I can have worth if I am loved. If I have a good career, if my children love me, and which finally then creates over desire for that idol. An affair never starts just because you find someone attractive, but it is an answer to some war that you have surrendered in the depth of your soul. Becoming numb because you aren't appreciated, because you aren't celebrated, because you feel emasculated or not loved or not cherished. Somewhere inside you give up and that leads to desiring you to be in the arms of another who you think sees you, who you think finds you beautiful and someone to celebrate. The first step toward life-altering transformation, it begins with the very awareness of the war within your heart, that you live blind to the inner war for your soul and the souls of those you most love, the abundant life and a life of flourishing that you're longing for as a single You're always constantly at war as you're looking at social media and all the people who are out and about celebrating their marriage and celebrating being with their kids as a single person. You're looking and the war is telling you you want that. You'll do anything to get that. You will compromise any and all things to have that. See, you're not any less in the eyes of God, and you're worth not any less. And yet, this war tells you that you are. And it's easier for you to believe that than the voice of God that tells you that I would give heaven and earth and have in my only son for you. That across the aisle, the very people who are married that you envy in their marriage, are the loneliest they've ever been, even as a single. That none of us are exempt from this war that is inside, that is demanding. We define our worth and our joy by our own control and lordship. You see, the abundant life that you and I, the flourishing that we're looking for in every relationship that we have and hold dear, we will destroy by our expectation and our demands. Meet it, or I'll find someone else. With our children, meet my expectation, or I will punish you until you become who I need you to be. We have to become aware, first of all, this war exists. We can't ignore it anymore because this is where sabotage is happening and the emptiness of your soul keeps looking for your worth in what you know, in what you say, in what you look like, in who you know and care about and who cares about you. You can't fix the other person and their dysfunction. It's easier, like we see in Genesis, to blame somebody else for the emptiness we feel inside. But you can't deal with other people's wars within them. Because you can't handle their dysfunction and what they bring to the table until you see the war within yourself. That you're chasing your worth and your joy in these idols that you have created for yourself. Within the recent news that I saw, there was news that Frozen 3 is going to be released. And for anybody who has little girls, what that means to the girl is different than what it means to us as parents. We will all be fighting a war within as we have to pay another $10,000 on dresses because... Elsa now has five dress changes in every show, and so our girls want those different dresses, the toys, the Frozen on ice. But I want to talk about the war within Elsa, and I think Frozen 1 actually spoke beautifully about what she was going through, and I think it speaks to us. If you look at that movie, at the beginning of that movie, Elsa loved her gift and her sister. They played, they made snow, snowman, all that stuff, and they were celebrating her best friend and all these things. Then she hurt her sister with her gift. And so she takes her gift in the words of her father and encouragement and buries that gift deep within. She cuts her ties with her sister and hides behind the wall door, and her little sister knocking every day. Then when she comes to her coronation, she almost hurts her, the her sister whom she loves. And so she decides, you know what, I'm out. And so she leaves her kingdom. She leaves her responsibility as queen. She abandons the sister that she loves and the subjects that she cares for. She goes to the mountains to get away from everything. And then here's the epic song that she sings, Let It Go. And here are the words. Don't let them see. Don't let them know. Hide it. All of her childhood, all that she loved, she pushes deep down. And now this war of fighting her worth and her joy, she pushes down. And even at that point, she can't control it. And then she sings, no right, no wrong. I can't hold it in anymore. Let it go. And then we're like all now like it's floating around in our heads as I say it. Let it go, right? You're all singing it and it's like her saying, "I want to let it go. I want to be me. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be pushed down." So what is her solution? She runs away. She hides. Leaves everyone she loves. And so her solution in herself is to be away from everyone she loves, hoping that being alone is truly the freedom that she longs for. And we know at the end of the movie, it's not. What she really needed is to be free to be who she is, to exercise how she is made, all that she is, in the light and the presence of the people that she loves. And love changes everything. In this way, if we continue to look for our worth and joy, apart from dealing with this war inside, you will keep putting out all these feelers to say, tell me that I am worth your time. Tell me that I am worth your love. Tell me that I am worth everything before you, because I feel empty inside without those things. Those are the things that the work of the flesh will continue to push you towards. And it will destroy every relationship that you value and love, because there's no end to it. So two, let's talk about this work of the flesh. It talks about, Sexual immorality, here are the evidences of you surrendering to the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissension and division ultimately leading to envy drunkenness orgies and things like these it all seems overwhelming like how are we going to deal with all of these but if you look at it in categories what it's saying is first it will be something inside of you that you want and long for that impacts you, then eventually this idolatry will begin to impact your relationship with other people. You will be jealous, you will cause strife and anger, and all this longing will define your relationship with other people, and then eventually the category will lead to your community around you being catastrophically impacted. So why is it so easy for us to give into the flesh? Because of the works of the flesh seem natural to us. We don't have to try to give into it. It just feels good and natural. The opposite of obeying and abiding in the work of the Spirit and its leading seems so hard and arduous. It seems so natural to us to want the success of our children to give us joy. It's good things. We want our children to be successful. We want them to succeed in life and not be a burden to society and all these things, to have their own worth. But at the end of the day, what if that becomes ultimate things, that when they fail, your world crashes around you, and that you'll do anything to make them succeed in the way that you expect them to, to hurt them even, to get them to do what you expect of them. All of these things are good things, and that's why it's so natural for us to continue down that path. But at the core, the works of the flesh are functioning at this idolatry level when good things are elevated to an over-desire at the identity level, at the God level. Whereas in God says you are his beloved and nothing is required of you, our idols say sacrifice everything at the table so that you can have a glimpse of glory, of joy, of love. And the chance, and at the chance of losing everything that you love and value. The foundation is not based on truth But it is based on fear and envy. What if I'm not enough? What what if people reject me? What if I no longer am valuable to someone or useful? It will always lead you to work harder than everyone else out of fear of becoming insignificant, forgotten, or even not mattering in this world. Madonna, when I was growing up, she was a pop icon. I mean, she just was everything when i was growing up she was all over she was bad girls she was also gifted all sorts of you know and guys had endless crushes beautiful music recently she faced a barrage well not recent recent but in the recent years she faced a barrage of bullying very evil that people went of course on social media and destroyed who she was and comments about her cosmetic procedures when she was almost unrecognizable at the Grammys. Because not one wrinkle was visible on her face. It is not typical or expected because she's a 64-year-old woman. What you expect naturally, of course, is just being a 64-year-old woman. Wrinkles, crow lines, beautiful smile lines. But what we are addressing here is not whether one should or should not get cosmetic surgery. We're addressing Madonna's inward struggle to matter, to find significance. And she, in an interview with Vogue magazine, actually shares the war inside, with her own words, so articulate. She says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. We're addressing this articulation of what's happening in her heart, this war that keeps telling her, you need to matter, you need to matter, pursue it, whatever you need to do. The applause of the people and the attraction of the people, this is what you need, and it is unending. Even though she was the greatest icon and pop star, she felt it to her core and even to the very day that we speak of her in her late 60s. It is an unrelenting pursuit that will never let you go. Giving in to her enslavement proved again that while she should be celebrated as a legend for her gifts and all that she's contributed, she's chasing this ghost. Because when you give in to those demands by your idols, there is less grace for yourself. And when you have less grace, for yourself, your wrinkles, your failures, your brokenness, and your hurts, then you will have very little grace for the people around you. You will demand the same perfection from them. And people will be crushed by it the way that you're crushed by your own. This war that most of us cannot see, cannot acknowledge, the Bible is so clear addressing that you will be on this journey for the rest of your life and enslaved until you are set free. That God gave his only begotten son to die on the cross, to feel his wrath for every unkind word, every manipulation of the people you love, every hurt, every broken thing you did to achieve your status and your purpose. He poured that wrath out on his only son who did nothing wrong so that you and I will never be rejected by the father that you are his and that you will forever be loved. Dr. Keller says this, it is briefly worth noticing that crucifying the sinful nature does not mean what it does not mean. Paul is not saying be hard on yourself, especially to your body. For example, It is an old tradition to give up something for Lent. Usually this means to refuse to satisfy some need for the rest, comfort, and pleasure. This is a serious mistake. It is obvious from the list of acts of the sinful nature that many of them have nothing to do with the body. Ambition, jealousy, envy... But the solution that we've come in religion, in Christianity, is asceticism, the denial of pleasure. They don't touch any of these. That we think somehow if we pray enough, if we read enough, if we attend church enough, if we serve enough, that somehow this war inside would be addressed. And he says it's not. You can't be holy enough. You can't give enough. You can't attend church enough to address what's happening inside. It is not some exercise to be hard on ourselves, like Martin Luther beating his flesh to a bloody pulp, thinking that that would address the war inside. It doesn't. Because the shame and the guilt we feel by the choices we make for the war that is inside can't be dealt with. By asceticism, holiness, legalism, because it's manufactured by our will. How does the Bible address it? The fruit of the Spirit. John Stott said this this section in which Paul develops this theme in simply full is simply full of the Holy Spirit. He is mentioned seven times by name. He is presented as our sanctifier, who alone can oppose and subdue the flesh, enables us to fulfill the law so that we are delivered, delivered from its harsh dominion and causes uh, the fruit of the righteousness to grow in our lives so that the enjoyment of Christian freedom depends solely on the Holy Spirit The weariness from our fight is because we are giving into legalism and this asceticism, separation from the world, holiness gained by our own strength, and separating ourselves from the things that we think is worldly. But God is saying it is the work of the Spirit. He leads, we abide, and we follow, and we trust the work happens at a heart level, and it is a long process that requires intentional work and patience. You know, most of us see the description of the fruit of the Spirit as some type of character to aim for. I remember when I was younger, I was like, yes, I want to have more love, so I'm going to love better. I want more joy, so I'm going to smile more often. And even when I'm hurting, I'm like, praise God. Patience, right? It's like someone's annoying. You're like, I love you. But inside, I'm like, you're so annoying. Kindness, like, at church. And then on the ride home, we're like, oh, my God, I can't stand five more minutes with that human. Goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of it. Because we think we have to accomplish these characteristics. Did you notice that it says the fruit? It is not fruits. It is not multiple characteristics you aim for. It is the singular fruit of the Spirit indwelling in your soul. It's not what you aim for. It's not how you try. It is when a Christian recognizes that when they are in control, that they will manufacture and fabricate holiness and love, and patience, and kindness, but when you abide, and you realize that you cannot win this war within by yourself, you submit to the leading of the Spirit, you surrender the lordship of your life, and you say, I make a mess of my marriage. I make a mess of my relationship with my kids. I make a mess at work to manipulate everything so that I can rise to the top. I am this. And I have to surrender to your will. I will not take control anymore. The two different verbs show a distinction of being led by the Spirit and it pulls up. In the Greek, you won't see this, but Holy Spirit comes first in both parts of abiding and being an active person is that the Spirit is the main character, not you. How much of our Christian life, we are the main character who abides. We are the ones who follow. We are the ones who sacrifice and give up. And this text is saying, it's him. Is he the one who transforms? Is he the ones that you submit to? So to live by the Spirit is to deliberately surrender your lordship and your personal version of the gospel and all the judgment you make at every church and every person you meet and say, oh, that person, waste of time, not really living like a Christian. And you put all of that aside, and for the first time you see we are all the same, waging war inside and judging everyone for not being a good Christian. And we say, Spirit of God, I repent of my judgmental heart. Would you lead the way? Would you help me reconcile with my father whom I can't stand because all he has done is abused our family? My son, my daughter, who I don't understand would you give me the strength to sit with them and hear their heart? You see, it has to be clear to you that salvation is by the finished work of Christ and you cannot earn it by effort. But that same salvation is a salvation that empowers us, that has the Spirit of God indwelling in us, that gives us the hope to break away from our enslavement to our idols. But you cannot do it with enough prayer and reading of the Bible and efforts on your own. He leads, and we follow. So what? Knowing that it is the fruit that breaks the chain, that allows us to love those that we disagree with, that we're not holding on to some manufactured gospel that we find that we like. The people that we love the most, the people that need us the most. If we don't address the war within us, we will manipulate, hurt, and destroy them with our own version of the gospel to find our worth and our joy in. Harper Love is the youngest of my three daughters. She is a miracle baby, and I, I'll explain why she's a miracle baby, a gift from God in every way imaginable. For me, because of our infertility, every pregnancy was a torture of the heart. Madison Hope, my oldest, will one day get her email address, Madison Hopes at gmail.com, and then she will read not words of joy that <laughs> She is in my wife's belly, but one of, oh my God, I don't know if you're alive, right? It was literally like 36 emails just filled with fear. Infertility caused me to have fear every single second of every moment that we're pregnant, literally until I held the baby, and then from when they were born, I feared that I was going to do something to kill them. And knowing this, You have to realize that when we had our two through all the fertility treatments, I was done. I was done with the first. And then when we had the second, I gave, yeah, you need siblings. But by the two, I was done. And my wife goes, let's try. She threw up for nine months, and she was willing to do it. And I was like, okay. But I gave her some conditions. I tried to convince her. It didn't work. So I said this, no more hanyak, no more acupuncture, you know, the deer antlers and stuff you drink, you know. And all the acupuncture and the western medicine and all sorts of things. We were like, we're done! No more interference from all, I mean, you know, the gifts and all this stuff. But I was like, none of that. If we're going to have a third baby, it is going to be God's miracle, like the splitting of the Red Sea. So inside, I assured myself and I said, we can't have kids without all the help. So I was like, yes, let's try. <laughs> right? So all this is happening inside, but on the outside I was like, yeah. Mm. Literally a few months in, she jumps on me with the pea stick, and she's like, look at it! And I was like, oh my God. We're going to have a third. I look at my Harper love now. And I literally cannot imagine our family ever without her. I should have known, having named our girls Madison, Hope, and Bailey Faith, that love was on the way and inevitable. Fast forward, all the girls took gymnastics at Big Little Gym or whatever it's called, And so when it was Harper's turn, she was really excited. She was like, I'm going to jump, and she's like all energy. And so when we went for the first time for the trial, she wept and said, I'm not going to do it. And so she cried literally for 30 minutes, and then for 15 minutes she was sitting in my wife's lap while all the other kids were jumping around, and she just wouldn't do anything. In my head, I was like, we're done. No gym for my little girl. And so I looked at my wife, and I was like, yeah, this, she doesn't want to do it. That's why. And she goes, let's try. And I was like, eh. okay, right? Even though on the inside, I was like, no, it's not going to work. On the outside, I was like, okay, let's try it. She took her. She talked to her coach. So she even went in one time by herself. She was doing her journey group, discipleship group. She goes, Bobby, can you take... Harper to the gym, and I said, oh, God, what if she's not there? It's going to fall apart. And I was like, okay. I put her in the car, and from the moment we started going to the gym, Harper goes, Dad, I don't want to do it. And I was like, no, 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 Harper, remember? You talked to Mommy, you had an agreement, and we're going to go do it. Ah!" And so we were driving, we got to the place, we got out, it started raining. I was like, oh, everything's going wrong. I walked into the thing. From the moment we walked in through the door, she is weeping. And I was like, Harper, remember the talk with mommy? You said you're going to do it. You're so excited. Let's go in and do it. She's just crying. She's like, no, no, no. She's standing by the door. I even call my wife in the middle of her meeting, and I was like, you need to talk to her. Here's mommy. And she's like, I have a group meeting. I can't talk to her. You take care of it. And I was like, I, okay, I didn't say this out loud. I wouldn't have to take care of it if you would have listened to the quiet voice in my head that said, this is never going to work. So now I'm getting mad at my wife. My rage is increasing. Why won't people listen to me? the silence in my head and the anger that I feel. And I was like, Harper, if you walk out this door, we will never come back. Now, no more kind daddy voice. This is like serious. And Harper looks at me and goes, that's right. No more gym class. Let's go, daddy. And I was like so angry. And then the rain was pouring down. I mean, it was like raining cats and dogs. I was like, oh! I opened the door. just like fury now. And as we were walking, I walk in front of her. I never walk in front of my girls. They're like, I hold their hand. I walk. I walk in front of Harper. Harper senses the distance because I'm so angry. And Harper reaches up and says, Daddy, I was so angry. I was angry at my wife, I was angry at her, I was angry at the embarrassment, I was angry that I couldn't control the situation, I was angry at everything, and I remember I looked at my four-year-old daughter, and I said, you're a flip-flopper. And when those words came out of my mouth to a four-year-old baby, and that I refused to take her hand and pulled it away, it crushed her soul. Instantly, she started weeping. I intentionally hurt my four-year-old daughter because I couldn't control what was happening inside of me. And now that I've had time to think about it, she mustered up the courage to reach for me again in her soaked tears in the rain, she goes, Daddy. And I ripped my hand away again. And I got her to the car, I threw her in the car seat, and I said, buckle it! And as I was driving home, now it was no longer mad at my wife or the kids, but I was like, I am singly the worst father that I know. And as she wept and wept and wept, she fell asleep, crying. We waited in the driveway because it was raining so much and she was asleep. And I texted my journey group guys, my discipleship guys, and I said, I am the worst father. I can't love my daughter. I need you to pray for me. I can't do it. And they said, you know, my guys are quick. They're like, gotcha, praying, just pray. Prayer is. And I was like, <laughs> like, okay. And I said, God, you never treat me like this. When I'm a failure and I'm, you don't punish me for not loving you or obeying you. But this is what I do. This is the father that I am. So can you give me the strength to reach for her? I unbuckle her and I pull her into my arms. And she's weeping. She can't control it because she's so hurt. But yet she snuggles up into my neck. And I know that's when she wants to be loved the most. And I hold her. And I prayed and say, God, give me the words to say. And all I could say was, Harper, Daddy's so sorry. Can you forgive me? I love you. And she says, I love you. And she crawled up into my neck. And she held my hand. You see, everyone we love, is waiting for us to deal with this war inside, to find our worth and our meaning and joy in what we think should define us. And everyone that we love becomes casualties of our idols of comfort and control and who we want to be, and they're all laying aside. And at some point, You have to stop blaming them for not loving you well enough or doing the things to celebrate you enough because that will never happen. None of it will ever be enough. At some point you have to say Spirit of God I live to my own lordship and to my own gospel and I surrender it all. Would you Have me as I am, as broken as I am. You see, the church is not a place where we're separated out by what we accomplish, what we know, or what we do. It is a place where people surrender their lordship to the lordship of our Savior. And the Holy Spirit leads us to bear fruit that will help those we love flourish. Christ Central, let's do that together. Let's pray. All of us are disappointed in our marriage, with our church, with our children, Friends who aren't, we say, aren't good friends, or they don't know us or love us well. But the Bible is the same. There's a war inside, a dissatisfaction. You're trying to look for joy and your worth and everything else around you. Things that change. We age. We fail. The people around you they need you to see it see the war within see the idolatry you surrender to every day because until that is answered will cause them anguish and pain to live to our standards and to meet our needs So let's pray, let's worship, let's go before God. What are the idols in my heart, God, that I hold to? Lord God, every single one of us, all of us, we walk in here with idolatry we defend to the point of hurting those we love the most. We build tribes to support us and attack those that don't agree with us. The kindness, the gentleness, the love, the patience, the long suffering, the goodness and the self-control, the fruit of abiding in you. Lord God, help us not manufacture them. Help us as we submit and abide and find you to be the most beautiful in our lives. We thank you for the truth of your word that cuts deep but also heals. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name.